This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by Health IQ, a company that asks questions and uses your answers to figure out how much they can save you on life insurance. Of course, ever since they started, Health IQ has been studying that data. So let's take a look at some of their more interesting findings. As you might expect, people that do well on the Health IQ quiz have about 10% lower obesity rates. But among people with children, it's a 20% difference. When looking at different generations, Gen X has the highest health IQ score, followed by baby boomers, and then millennials. Sorry, millennials. We're not dumb. We just don't test well. People who are following a diet also tend to have a higher health IQ than everyone else. And the Mediterranean diet seems to inspire the greatest lifestyle changes. So if you're a Gen X parent on the Mediterranean diet, or even if you just tried it once, there's a good chance you're going to qualify for lower rates on life insurance. To find out, go to healthiq.com outside. Take the quiz and find out if all that fancy olive oil you bought might start to pay for itself. That's healthiq.com outside. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Interview. I'm just going to test your guys' mics. With Chris Katz. We all sort of know, in an intuitive way, that nature is good for us. If it's not intuitive for you, people like me have probably been telling you all about it recently. It's in the news. And if you're not hearing it from your favorite podcast hosts, well, how about 16th century doctor Paracelsus, who wrote, the art of healing comes from nature, not from the physician. If not Paracelsus, then William Wordsworth, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and John Muir made their case for the national park system by touting nature's therapeutic effects and curative powers. And this month, we can add Florence Williams to that heady list of nature writers. She's a contributing editor at the magazine and has actually been writing for it for 20 years now. In 2012, she wrote a piece that was nominated for a National Magazine Award and has now expanded that into a book called The Nature Fix, why nature makes us happier, healthier, and more creative. It explores the cutting-edge science of how the woods make us feel better, the stress hormones, brain waves, and protein markers, and generally demystifies this thing that all those dead guys were talking about, why people feel better in the wild. You're going to be hearing a lot more from Florence on the Outside Podcast this spring, but for now, here she is talking with Outside's editor, Chris Kies. Well, great. I'm so, I'm so glad uh, we could connect for this. I really enjoyed the book. And, you know, before we get into some of the science uh, of what we know about nature, I want to start where you do by hearing, you know, more about how radically our lives have shifted away from nature. Can you kind of characterize how the, the modern lifestyle has shifted us away? Sure. And, and I come to that realization really in a personal way. Um, I had been living in Boulder, Colorado. And before that, I was living in Montana for 10 years. Uh, and my husband got a job in Washington, D.C. And so we moved. Uh, and, and my life went from being, you know, extremely connected to nature, you know, on a daily, almost hourly basis, um, you know, to, to feeling very removed from it and cut off from it in this kind of mega herb of D.C. And, and then, you know, I realized at some point that my personal story, you know, kind of reflected what was going on on a global level. I mean, we are now living in the largest mass migration in modern history. 
where more people around the world live in urban areas than don't live in them. And yet I feel like um, this, this you know, sort of incredible migration is very little remarked upon because not only are we moving to cities, but we're also kind of massively moving indoors and we're not really talking about it. And what do we know about what effect that that's having on our health? I mean, you talk about how we essentially have a nervous system that would seem designed for a completely different way of life. Sure. You know, we evolved outside. And so, uh, you know, that's where our perceptual systems uh, evolved. Our brains, you know, were built to sort of look at elements of nature. You know, we, we were designed to to interpret information from vegetation, from water, um, you know, from from the soil, like literally. And we, we put ourselves in these, uh, you know, urban environments, in these office environments, indoor environments, uh, where information is kind of coming at us in, in a much more rapid way, you know, than it than it does if you're just, you know, living outside. Uh, and that takes a toll. It takes a toll on our nervous systems. It takes a toll on our attentional systems, sort of the attention networks in our brains get very overtaxed by this kind of constant onslaught of, of information that we're supposed to process. Um, and it makes us tired. It can make us cranky. You know, on this kind of subconscious level, we just get kind of worn down. And, and I think, you know, in in most cases for, for a lot of people, especially readers of this magazine, the idea that nature would be an antidote makes a lot of intuitive sense. But there is very, there's very little, at least until very recently, on the science end backing that up. Can you sort of characterize where we are in terms of our understanding of, of how nature affects our health? You know, one thing you talk about is you draw the analogy about what we know about exercise and health and the benefits of that, both on cognition and, you know, overall physiological systems. But we seem to be in a very early stages of understanding um, nature. You know, for centuries, uh, philosophers and poets and scientists have been, uh, you know, sort of expounding the benefits of being on long walks or being in a garden, um, how they're more creative when they're um, when they're outside. You know, Wordsworth would, I think he walked something like 10,000 miles in his lifetime and he actually composed poetry while he was walking. Um, Nikola Tesla, you know, invented, you know, the modern engine, combustion engine while he was walking in a park. Um, and yet it's only very recently that science has been kind of documenting, you know, what the poets and philosophers knew. And, and it's still early days in terms of documenting that. I think it really started in the 1970s when environmental psychologists um, started, you know, kind of noticing that people like who were stressed or depressed, you know, did better after time outside. And, and, and then the research was sort of qualitative. You know, it was based on questionnaires. Um, subjects would would uh, you know answer uh, this list of kind of established psychological questionnaires like um, the connectedness questionnaire or the mood questionnaire, <laughs> um, you know various um, emotional questionnaires and 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 yeah they would say hey yeah I do feel better but it was again it wasn't really quantitative um, and, and so it's only been recently I think that we we have some tools you know where we can actually look for biomarkers kind of see what might be happening with brain waves. Um, or with brain activation, we now have like portable EEG units. And those are, you know, uh, electroencephalogram units that we can wear like a bathing cap and actually go out in the field and sort of get away from the lab uh, and see, see what's really going on in our brains. And, and again, it's early days. So the science is, you know, it's kind of tricky. There are a lot of confounding factors. It's hard to kind of tease out 
you know, why it is that someone is feeling better? Is it because they're away from noise and, you know, air pollution? Is that it? Or is there actually something in the environment where they are that's doing something to their brains? Yeah, it seems like, um, as you characterize it, that there isn't so much um, debate, or at least among the scientists, on whether nature is good for you, but but why and what the mechanisms are for reaping its benefits. And you talk a little bit about the sort of two competing thoughts. I'm hoping you can define them a, a little bit. There's this attention restoration theory and then the stress reduction theory. Can you talk about that debate going on right now? Oh boy, I'll try. It gets a little technical. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the uh, Kaplans, Rachel and Stephen Kaplan from the University of Michigan in the 1970s, who I think really pioneered this psychology work, posited this theory called uh, the attention restoration theory. And that was really predicated on um, the belief that it's all about our sort of attentional resources and how we use our brains to interpret information. So the theory there is that when we go outside, um, we actually can rest the attentional network in our brain because the stimuli is coming at us kind of in a much slower, more, you know, more um, deeply evolved fashion that we're comfortable with. And because our brains then can kind of interpret this information in a comfortable way, it relaxes our nervous system. So almost the, the attentional network piece comes first and then the relaxation follows. Um, so, so then now there's this kind of competing theory um, actually initiated by a student of the Kaplan's, this guy Roger Ulrich, and that's called the stress reduction theory. And his idea, I think, is, is really more connected to this idea of biophilia, you know, that we evolved in nature, we're um, deeply connected to it, and when we go into a natural environment, we, we, we feel relaxed and we feel happy. And because we feel relaxed and happy, that's why our attentional network, um, you know, kind of takes a break and then kind of rejuices itself so that we feel cognitively sharper, you know, when we go back inside. So it's, it, it, they're, I think they're really similar, but, but it's kind of like which came first, the chicken or the egg. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I'm not sure it, it really matters. I mean, you're sort of in the weeds there. Well, in terms of the science and, and setting up the research, which, as you point out, is, is, is really complicated, what a lot of these studies seem to do are, are kind of breaking down the way we absorb nature. And, you know, visuals and, and looking at nature, whether photographs of nature or being out in, in, a, in a beautiful setting, um, those studies get a lot of attention. But, you know, early on in the book, you, you talk a lot about smells and odors. Can, can you Talk a little bit about how that mechanism works uh, when you're outside and, and how a smell can affect your mood. Yes, and I have to thank you, Chris, because this whole journey for me really started when Outside Magazine assigned me to write about forest bathing in Japan. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's where I really learned um, that the scientists there are very interested in the senses. Um, and they believe that we have this you know, nervous system response instantly, you know, almost when we walk into nature. Um, part of that is because um, of our sense of smell. You know, when, when we smell something, there's this kind of um, automatic highway <laughs> from our nose into our brains. And our brains change really quickly in the presence of, of smell. Uh, it's a very powerful sense that, that is kind of, I think, um, neglected somewhat. You know, we're such visual creatures. Um, sometimes we discount the power of smell. And so going to Japan really, um, you know, kind of brought home 
that science about about odor. The forests in Japan are filled with um, tree aerosols. They're, a lot of them are cypress trees, so they're evergreens. They have this kind of wonderful, pungent, um, you know, almost Christmas tree meets vaporub. <laughs> it, <laughs> it's really invigorating. You know, instantly you walk into that forest and you're like, oh my God, I, you know, I can breathe and I feel great. And, and so they are documenting, you know, kind of what, are, what the physiological um, result of that is how our blood pressure um, drops, our heart rate drops, our stress hormones, our cortisol levels um, drop 16% after just a few minutes in this environment. So, so now, you know, they, they've kind of um, almost fetishized these Hinoki cypress smells. You know, you can actually buy um, Hinoki cypress um, toothpaste. You, know, you can buy uh, shampoo. It's, it's become commercial, of course, you know. One of the things I really liked about that was there's this idea of, um, you know, how separate we are from nature and how a lot of it can seem, in, to some people, I'm sure, living in a, in a urban area that, um, well, nature is this other thing and, and it's, it's work to get out there. But one of their studies showed that just putting some of these oils in a humidifier in your room can have a, a, <laughs> a huge effect on your immune system, just smelling that as you sleep at night. Yeah, why go outside? Um, yeah, there was an interesting study, this sort of hotel room study, where a researcher, um, this guy Cheng Li, uh, in in Japan, put some subjects in a hotel room, you know, with virtually no odor, and then, or maybe just natural eau de hotel, um, and then some subjects in a room with this mister with Hinoki cypress, and he found that that the subjects in the Hinoki cypress oil misting rooms um, had this incredible boost in their killer T immune cells, which are important for fighting cancer. Uh, and he also had seen this, you know, in subjects who walked actually in the woods as opposed to subjects who walked in a city. So he has this whole theory that that and it lasts for sort of seven to 21 days so that we all need to go walk in the woods, um, you know, every every week or two <laughs> in order to keep our immune systems working. <laughs> well, there's also sound, which is another sort of overlooked one that we, we don't think about as much when we're thinking about nature. And you had a real personal effect with that, as, as you alluded to, moving to D.C., Talk, talk about how sound affects us in, in ways that we're, we might be surprised, especially ambient noises that we're not even aware of. I, I do have kind of a personal relationship with a sound. <laughs> I didn't even realize this, but it was, it was one of the changes that surprised me when I moved to Washington, D.C., is that it turns out I'm actually very sensitive. <laughs> I'm sensitive to noise pollution. And we, we moved to a neighborhood in D.C. that's right under the flight path for Reagan National Airport. And in fact, I have this little shed in my backyard where I write. And so I'm there all day. It's like maybe not the best insulated shed. <laughs> and these jets fly overhead about once a minute. And, you know, I just got to the point where I was just going crazy and I would sort of like run outside and shake my fists at these airplanes, um, which it turns out is really not very good for your <laughs> for, <laughs> for your mental health. <laughs> it's not very good for your stress levels. Um, so, yeah, so I, I spent some time um, also talking to scientists who are researching both negative sound, you know, what things like truck noise, highway noise, airplane noise do to our nervous systems, and then also what positive nature sounds um, such as running water or you know babbling brooks, as you know the poets say, um, bird song especially, they those things actually make us feel great in studies. So there are lab experiments. I did some of them um, 
in which a researcher, you know, will stress you out, and they stressed they stressed me out by by um, giving me like a public speaking task and then <laughs> a, a math task, <laughs> and those are the two things that stress people out more than anything else. I love those tests because I, I mean I I could just imagine even if I knew they were coming, I I, I could just identify with how quickly they stress anybody out. Yeah, just no the kidding. idea, even if it's even if it's just for a fake test. I knew they were coming, and I knew it was a fake test. They had me give a speech deliver a speech in front of a big mirror, you know, and behind the mirror, there was supposed to be a panel of judges judging you on your speech. And halfway through your speech, which you, by the way, have to write like at the last minute before you have to give it, um, a, a tech actually knocks on your door and says, oh, excuse me, we can't hear you at all. You need to speak much louder. <laughs> and it's this kind of like hostile criticism of your speech partway through. And I was like, oh, that's kind of clever. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so they get you nice and stressed <laughs> out and then they expose you to some sounds, right? Yeah, and then they expose you to some sounds. Um, and I was assigned to one of three conditions. Um, I didn't know which one. Uh, and, and, and they started playing a video for me of Yosemite, this kind of pretty field, you know, backed by mountains in Yosemite. It was very relaxing, and I started to calm down. And then, like, a couple of minutes into the video, this big truck, like this garbage truck, you know, came into the scene. And then, you know, a plane flew overhead, and then the truck started beeping and backing up. <laughs> And I was like, wait a minute, what happened to my nature recovery? Um, so I was assigned to, you know, this sort of middle condition in which, um, you know, you could actually, the, my, my cortisol and my heart rate were all being, you know, measured during this during this kind of recovery experiment. And, and I did start to recover from my stressful speech task. But then when these noises, these anthropogenic man-made noises came on, my stress levels went back up. So it kind of shows you that A, I am particularly sensitive, you know, to these noises and and B, we probably all are because it's very, very hard to find a natural environment in which there aren't human made sounds. And is this another case? I mean, do they know a particular sound that is the most beneficial and and should we be listening to that, for example, when we sleep? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there are people out there who, you know, absolutely swear that bird song, you know, is kind of the magic bullet. And it's sort of interesting. I mean, it, it makes sense in a way, you know, we evolved, uh, you know, living with, with birds. Um, when they started chirping in the morning, it was kind of one way that our brains knew that sort of all was right with the world. Mm-hmm. You know, when the birds are singing, you know, there's not some like big hurricane about to hit. Um, things are sort of working. And, and so on some level, it calms us down. And we also know that, you know, like birds, we process language and, and they process language and we're so attuned to language that our brains, you know, are comfortable with that. But we can't understand bird language. And that's also kind of comforting because we don't actually have to listen to it very hard. <laughs> we, it's just there is this kind of background soundtrack that makes us happy. And so this is a funny story. Um, the, the Brits especially, right, they, they just go crazy for their birds. British Petroleum is now piping birdsong into um, some of their gas station restrooms, <laughs> <laughs> you know, in this bid to sort of make people think it's a fresh, you know, oh, clean right, right. experience. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how that, that's, that's one place to tackle is the gas station restroom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good luck with that, yeah. right? It's really going to help. I don't know. <laughs> But I was interested when you were talking about the bird sounds, and and, um, it seems similar to what we're now understanding about the visual component of this, too. And and when you're out in nature and you're taking in a good view, 
it seems to allow this same sort of soft focus that you're allowed to with hearing in, in the bird song, where you don't have to key in on a particular sound, but it's just this ambient noise that is beneficial. So what do we know about imagery and what we look at and how that affects us? They're, they're a whole group of a cognitive psychologists and neuroscientists who are trying to actually break down the components of kind of the visual landscape uh, and sort of parse apart, you know, what it is that our brains find soothing and comforting and what it is that we find kind of jarring and on some level uncomfortable. Um, and it looks like, you know, from, from what they found out so far, our brains really love, you know, not surprisingly, the colors blue and green because those are um, the colors that sort of imply um, safety and food and clean water, um, you know, an environment that we can survive in. Um, whereas, for example, the color red, I mean, it's also found in nature, but it's kind of an alert color. It's often, you know, kind of the color of poison <laughs> um, or the color of just arousal, too. Um, so on some, some ways, our, our brains kind of become more alert in those environments um, where we see red. We know that um, straight lines make us also feel a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, and they show this you know, by, uh, for example, measuring brain waves um, while our brains are looking at these different kind of images and pictures. There's kind of this sweet spot of visual information um, where there's enough kind of, of interest in the landscape in front of us to keep us interested, but not so much that it's too demanding. So if you think about like a downtown intersection, um, that's kind of everything we don't like, our brains don't like. It's a mm. ton of information, a ton of stimuli coming at us really quickly. It's straight Euclidean lines, which are not found in nature, and our brains have a little bit of a harder time just interpreting that information. So it's a little bit demanding for us. Well, the other thing, and, and hopefully you can explain, <laughs> explain this better than I can, but there's this idea that, you know, most of these natural settings have a fractal structure to them. Yeah. The sort of evolving right. symmetry of the views that we take in. So there's this symmetry to, say, a patch of clouds that might not be apparent just staring at it, but um, they, they develop in a symmetrical pattern. And there seems to be this idea that, you know, looking at, nature because of its fractal pattern is more pleasing to us. Is that right? I interviewed a couple of scientists who are just convinced, you know, that it's fractal geometry <laughs> that holds the key to our kind of connection to nature. Uh, and uh, th yeah, they, they've done experiments where they measure brain waves, they give people images to look at. And there's a, one particular fractal dimension, um, and it's like the dimension of sort of 0.5 about, which is like, again, a, a, a landscape that's busy, but not too busy, interesting, but not threatening. It's kind of the sweet spot in which um, we put out alpha waves. And alpha waves, I guess, are sort of like the holy grail of brainwave states. You know, it's like what Buddhist monks have managed to figure out how to access alpha waves, because it's a state where you feel sort of calm, but also alert. So it's a good place to be. You know, it's literally like when we're looking also at, a, at for example, um, waves or ocean waves or creek waves. You know, we're sort of literally in flow, but it's also where artists describe being in this more metaphoric state of flow. It's all about the alpha. <laughs> and they're convinced it's fractal patterns. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, another thing you talk about is this idea of awe. 
And being in places that evoke that feeling, um, say the Grand Canyon, looking out and just in- inducing wonderment, what kind of effect can that have on, on, on us? And what's the mechanism there? I was so interested in this field of science um, in which people are studying the power of awe. And there's actually a whole, a whole field devoted to the science of awe. Um, and I, the idea behind it is that when we experience something vast, you know, like the Grand Canyon or like the Milky Way, um, it, uh, it really takes us out of ourselves because it's so vast that we almost have trouble comprehending it. Uh, it's a little bit challenging to sort of understand, um, but it's off, something really like literally awesome, just beautiful, you know, a little bit unknown. There's a little bit of mystery to it. Um, and that, that kind of perfect engagement with us makes us feel, uh, it turns out, more connected to each other, um, kind of less obsessed with our own kind of personal problems or personal drama. Yeah, and I think, I'm think i glad you, you said takes us out of ourselves because that brings us to another thing that I think a lot of us know intuitively. You know, anybody who's had a bout of insomnia knows how a thought can just cycle over and over in your head. And yet, whenever I'm out on a trail run or a hike or anything, you just notice that you never fixate on on your problems. And that's something else that they've, they've kind of codified with the, the research. It backs it up that um, we don't seem to wallow as much when we're in a natural setting. Well, Chris, that raises an interesting question. And I'm curious, when, that, when you experience that, does it take you a while to sort of like how long into your run does it take before you kind of forget about whatever you're you know, obsessing over? I find that it, 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 it's pretty rapid. You know, I could be having a bad day at work and fixated on something. And as soon as I go out for a run, um, it seems like within the first five minutes, I'm starting to think about, I'm starting to create ideas in my head for something and, and solving problems rather than wallowing on them. That's awesome. I, I've noticed that too. I think it takes me a little bit longer, yeah. <laughs> but maybe that's because I'm not in Santa Fe. Um, <laughs> Yeah, the, what the science shows on this, and there's, there was a really interesting study out of Stanford um, in which a psychologist sent a group of uh, subjects on a 90-minute walk uh, in a city park, but a nice city park. It's like the dish at Stanford, so it's really pretty. And then another group of subjects to walk along um, a big boulevard uh, in sort of downtown Palo Alto. And what he found, uh, he measured their brains sort of before and after, um, he was really interested in this idea of rumination, which is something that you bring up when you talk about how we obsess over a particular thought if there's something bothering us. We know that this kind of rumination or obsessive thinking is linked to depression. So it's something psychologists are really interested in. Um, and what they found was that in, in only the park walkers, but not the city walkers, a part of the brain called the subgenual prefrontal cortex really quieted down in the park walkers. So somehow blood flow was not going to the subgenual prefrontal cortex, which is where this kind of like obsessive thinking kind of resides, they think. Um, and yet in the city walkers, it was still very much there. And, the, and in fact, on these kind of questionnaires, the city walkers reported that really they didn't feel that restored um, or that calm after their walk. Whereas the park walkers were like, hey, I actually feel much better. Uh, and it turns out they weren't thinking about their personal problems. I think the big question, though, is, you know, if the blood is not going <laughs> to sort of the worry box, right, in our brains, where is it going? And I think that's something we don't really know. 
I'm, I'm, I realized about halfway through your book that it was really just an excuse for you to travel all over the world. I mean, you went to Seoul and Japan and Scotland and Finland. But <laughs> one of the things that was really interesting to me is, you know, I think particularly in America, we think of nature as these wild spaces. And a lot of these other countries who are focusing on some of this research are focused just as much on, you know, natural settings within even just a park. And... I found it a little alarming sometimes in the way that they are kind of creating almost a Disneyland type of an atmosphere, so uh, you know, a place where you can go just get your quick fix of nature. Did you struggle with that at all? I struggled with that a lot uh, because I think, like you, like a lot of Americans, uh, you know, I did also have this, you know, image of nature as being, you know, kind of pure, a little bit apart from us. Um, I've certainly spent a lot of time in the mountains. I've spent a lot of time in wilderness areas. You know, I love those places. And, and those are the places I kind of yearn for and want. Uh, so I would say the lessons I learned, are, you know, are sort of complicated because on the one hand, you know, a lot of people in the world don't have access to wilderness. Mm-hmm. And yet the science shows that they really can be benefited from just these kind of micro exposures to nature or from, you know, a rooftop garden um, in, in Singapore where I went, there are these amazing vertical gardens. You know, mm-hmm. It's sort of like the buildings there are almost alive, <laughs> you know, this kind of creepy way. <laughs> they're kind of like waving in the wind and there are these grasses and sedges and birds like literally just hanging out, you know, on these vertical gardens. It's sort of beautiful, but it's also I, I had to wonder like, OK, this is nice, but but where's the biodiversity? You know, mm-hmm. if we have a couple of species of birds and butterflies uh, in Singapore, but we've lost, you know, 60 percent of what's native, um, are we also acknowledging that uh, and are we even noticing it? And so, yes, on the one hand, we need urban nature. But on the other hand, I think we have to still value, you know, this kind of bigger concept of, you know, ecosystems and and what biodiversity means for our own health. Yeah, and, and, and there is the and yet, and you talk about Singapore and Seoul and going to Tokyo. It was interesting that those three, those three Asian countries seem to be pretty far ahead of us in terms of how they're thinking about the therapeutic benefits from a policy standpoint and really trying to create opportunities for their really stressed out populaces to, to benefit from nature that aren't just, you know, heading out to the Grand Canyon or something much, much larger than that. That's right. And, and, and that taught me a lesson, too, you know, which is maybe I don't need to just, um, you know, be so snobby <laughs> about about what counts as nature. Actually, I really like Oscar Wilde's definition of nature, which is um, a place where birds fly around uncooked, <laughs> you know, which just seems like a really generous, you know, idea of nature that that, yes, we need city nature. Most of us live in cities. Let's not be so precious about it. You know, maybe we can actually, um, you know, like what we've got, learn to love what we've got. And then, you know, when we can, you know, have these kind of, you know, brief, wonderful excursions into true wilderness that I think, you know, you and I and, and so many of your listeners know that, you know, on some level we all need at certain times in our lives. Questions, which is, it's so gratifying to sort of see some of this research come out and, and um, confirm the benefits of nature. And yet I can't help thinking about the fact that, you know, we know so much about what's good for us, about both diet and exercise, yet obesity remains this massive problem. 
How much do you think that our, our greater understanding about nature is going to change our, our actual habits? And, and if you're, you're kind of pessimistic on that view, is there something that we need to start doing from a policy standpoint to take advantage of what we know? I think that's a great question. I think from you know experience, we know that we don't always do what's best for us, <laughs> even though we know it. Um, we we don't eat as much kale and broccoli, you know, as we know we're supposed to. Um, so I think I think uh, the sort of life changing benefits of this knowledge are, are probably sort of limited. And so yeah, I do think that that in some level we have to take these kind of daily decisions out of the realm of you know individuals and and into our institutions and actually i'm really heartened by that you know we know that parents just aren't taking their kids outside that often um, they're not that comfortable like letting their kids run around on their own that's probably not going to change even if people get this information but i think what can happen is that schools can really incorporate more recess you know into the day um, they uh, can do more outdoor programming. I'm actually I'm in Oregon today, and Oregon has this amazing Proposition 99 that voters passed last year. Uh, it requires every fifth and sixth grader to go to outdoor school for a week a year. Uh, I think that's a really cool thing. I think that our institutions and um, yeah, our policies can really reinforce this information and hopefully do the most important thing, which is really getting kids outside so that they have a connection to nature that will last their entire lives. And then more people will read Outside Magazine. <laughs> exactly. That's why I really love this stuff. Exactly. <laughs> um, well, then the, then the last thing, which is like this sort of surprising worry, and you, you idea it in the, in the book as well, but it was sort of creeping up on me as I read this, is the more they break this science down into these individual parts, the more you could kind of see the commodifying of nature you know you just need to get your essential oil and put it in your humidifier and then you know record some bird songs and have that on your stereo and home and do, do you worry about you know is there a danger that we'll we're just going to turn nature into another commodity of course i think we're already seeing it um, you know, we're seeing apps that, um, you know, just tell us to, to close our eyes and meditate for a few minutes. Um, we're seeing, you know, videos of nature that are projected into hospital buildings. Um, you know, there are pictures of nature on top of the ceiling, you know, at your dentist's office. I mean, these are great. But I think ultimately, you know, we really need to remind ourselves that if we want the full benefits, we just have to get outside and, and do it more than we think we do. Uh, and get our kids interested early on. Yeah. Well, Florence, thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. It's been a pleasure. Let's go for a hike. Good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's Florence Williams in conversation with Chris Kyes. Her book is The Nature Fix, and she's on tour for it now. She'll be in New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Colorado in the next few weeks. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX. 